The Curmudgeon Rock Report. Curmudgeon rhymes with bludgeon. Rock gods do it right. So do rock nerds. We're here for The Rock. 1965, 2021, doesn't matter. Crude, rude, yet somehow sophisticated. Welcome. Enjoy the show. Hello there. Uh, welcome to the first episode of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. Uh, we hope you're as excited as we are. Uh, this is uh, a long time coming, and uh, we think that this will be the rock podcast uh, that you deserve. Uh, we definitely believe it'll be better than your average. We know that uh, everybody uh, with a mic or every other person with a mic is starting a podcast these days, but uh, we're really inspired. Uh, think of this as a love letter and a breakup letter all in one about rock and roll, about popular music, about popular music history, about culture, and all of the things that are associated with it. Um, I'm so, getting all teary-eyed already. Yeah, I was going to say, no shit. I'm, I'm, uh, and so you can, you can expect a lot of passion. Uh, uh, no, no violins, we promise. We're not going to play like Modest Yavu uh, Orchestra or uh, any of that. Uh, we're not going to put you to sleep with Scott Walker music. Yeah, exactly. One of the disagreements you'll find that uh, we have is that uh, I enjoy the Flaming Lips and Arturo can't stand them. So uh, one of many, many, many disagreements in the in the canon of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. And so uh, let us introduce ourselves real quick as the uh, as the curmudgeons. Uh, my name is Chris O'Connor, uh, professionally known as Christopher O'Connor, or at least on my mom and uh, my fiance. And on the other end is a uh, possibly my best friend in the world, probably my best friend in the world, Arturo Andrade, and also the smartest and weirdest popular music obsessive I know. We'll talk about his uh, long winding collection of year by year. Uh, compilations. Yes, lots of compilations. Anyway, Arturo, what's uh, what's on your mind? And since I gave a soliloquy, what do you got on your mind? And what do you have to say up, up here up, 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 up the uh, the gate? Well, greetings from South Korea. Um, uh, Chris, you're out there in Houston, Texas. I live in Gwangju, South Korea. Um, I'm an English teacher at a university, but I've been a hardcore music obsessive since I would say my low greetings from uh, the land of the morning calm. And uh, we hope you all enjoy this uh, little um, endeavor of love on our part. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what Arturo forgot to tell you is that he masturbates to BTS every night. <laughs> they, they are so handsome, man. They wear oh, that yeah. makeup. They look like girls. <laughs> no, no, ab 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 absolutely. They're a they're, they're a dreamboat outfit that uh, that we, that we root for uh, every day. And and like Arturo said, I'm outside of here of uh, of uh, Houston. And uh, my my shaving regimen here under COVID has me competing with Billy Gibbs, Gibbons for best beard in the state. So, uh, and, yeah. to this, and to this day, that tells you how old we are. That I cannot every time I hear BTS, 
the first thing I think of is built to spill. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. It does definitely speak to our age. And uh, it also reminds us that uh, for every terrible BTS, there's a wonderful BTS. So, uh, <laughs> so, so, so it's, it's, it's all good. Um, I'm, waiting, I'm waiting for the genius to come up with the idea to have those two collaborate. Oh yeah, absolutely. They'll, they'll program the beats and then Marshall get some crazy uh, solo going. Although uh, from what I've seen lately, March is pretty much serving as his own uh, guitar tech, which has made a lot of their shows kind of horrific because uh, he can't. Which means Doug Marsh probably needs the money, which means he should collaborate with BTS. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, ride ride the coattails. So anyway, this is the kind of uh, this is the kind of stuff that you can expect. This is born from a uh, twenty-seven and a half year. Uh, friendship that um, is uh, winding deer, uh, put the two of us in a room and you'll find yourself saying what the fuck within, within five minutes. Um, it's just the nature of the relationship, but, and now we're, we're turning it into podcast form. So it's all good. Uh, speaking of which the curmudgeon rock report, uh, what is this podcast and uh, why are we calling ourselves curmudgeons? I can answer that question. Um, it's very simple. Why, why, what is this podcast? It's basically a platform for us to do what we've been doing since we first met as college freshmen in 1993 in Syracuse University. Just uh, talk and debate about music. And basically, this is just recording that and putting it out there and inviting the world to uh, chip in as well. Why are we curmudgeons? Well, I can speak for myself only that um, I'm very much, or curmudgeon is putting it really in a rough way, but it is kind of accurate in the sense that I have very snobbish taste in music. People who've known me for years have told me that repeatedly. Um, I, I take that as a good thing in some ways because it means I'm discerning means you can't like everything. You can't love everything. And one of the things that makes me curmudgeonly is when I speak to people and I ask them, well, tell me what kind of music you like. And they say, oh, I like everything. That pisses me off. Come on now. Nobody, nobody likes everything. You cannot like everything. There has to be some kind of music that you don't like. No one is that beautifully, wonderfully warm-hearted and so open-hearted that they accept all genres of music into their warmth and caress. Bullshit. Everybody has stuff they dislike. Everybody has stuff they hate. And the more of a passionate music fan you are, the more you are passionate about the stuff you love, and the more you are passionate about the stuff you really dislike. Yeah. And I think, and, and curmudgeon, okay, that's good. But that's just one side of our music passion because we can also talk about the stuff that we really, really love. And we will talk about that. But none of those, none of those adjectives or words sound as cool as, cur as curmudgeon. That's why we're calling Mr. Curmudgeon Rock Report. Right, exactly. And to Arturo's point, this is not a uh, intended as a hate on fest, uh, although we will do plenty of hating on. Oh, but, I will. <laughs> oh, yeah, me too. Uh, you know, I have a I have a low tolerance. I, I guess we're in terms of music where it comes in for me. I have a low tolerance for artists that phone it in. Um, I have a low tolerance for just gratuitous stuff that uh, has no point. 
Uh, I also am a longtime critic, and I'll actually get into that in a second, of the music industry, the music business. Um, they, uh, look, the, the, business, the, the music business as we knew it 25 years ago is basically dead, and not because of uh, piracy or uh, the streaming services or the de- democracy of the internet and all of that. No. The incompetence and greed of the record industry. Yeah, and the short-sightedness. Yeah, they yeah. were just, they were stupid. Uh, they had a chance to settle with Napster. This has always been my theory, and it, it is pretty much proven because of all of the stuff. The, that literature, the literature has come out since then, yeah. Yeah, that basically they had a chance to settle with Napster. And what would have happened is that the labels would have set up a subscription service with Napster. And basically they would have set up the Spotify model. But for it to work all at the time, five labels needed to be on board. And two of them, two or three of them were stupid enough to hold out and say, you know, you know, we're going to maintain our monopoly and the control because, you know, we we're, you know, we just, you know, we can't trust uh, this thing. And, you know, and and also the, the current business model they had at the time. Okay, CDs and, and, and physical media that you go to a store and buy, it was so profitable for them. They just didn't want to let go, and that's yeah. where the, that's where the greed and the short sightedness comes in. Yeah, the last straw for me was, um, and I can't even remember who the hell it was, but it, when it was in 1999, I went to Tower Records, and there was like some album that was like 36 minutes long, and they were still charging you 19.99. Oh. I remember t- 2001 when Weezer's Green album came out. That song is that album is ten minutes, ten songs long. Each song is like two minutes long. That's like under half an hour, and they're going to charge you nineteen ninety something for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so basically, what you're doing and it's a is a shitty record, except for like three songs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, what you're doing is you're paying for a bunch of nonsense, waste, and overhead, and which was a joke and promotion, which was a joke because like like everything else, like in manufacturing, those CDs cost probably what about 75 cents to actually cut out and make in the factory. And then the digital editing etching process was not that expensive either. So, but anyway, the music but business. The, 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 for, the fortunate thing about being in that era or, or living in that era, like we did and, uh, or people of our age or younger than us did is that we could do something about it. We could rip and burn back then, rip and burn your own CD compilations or rip and burn whatever you want to. Back in the 1940s, 50s, 60s and 70s, you know, a lot of artists put out vinyl records and albums that had two or three songs and a bunch of crappy filler and they had to live with it. They couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> yeah, but, 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 it's, but it's, it's one of the things I've always said is that uh, – that if you have like one or two like genius three and a half minute pop songs on a record, it pretty much, you know, you can forgive uh, the rest of it because, you know, those uh, lift the boats. But anyway, to get to. That's that's good. It's true. Especially too, if you have a CD where you can skip tracks, but back in the days of vinyl records, you couldn't do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, unless you trained yourself to, to find the groove, basically each groove represented the song. I mean, I learned to do that from my dad's record collection and, and for what it's worth, I got to give a shout out to Dad's collection. He had shit like blood, uh, blood, sweat, and tears, and uh, he had deja vu. I mean, look, you know, my my dad was a yeah you know, a, a guy who used to uh, get drunk and like sing Irish folk songs. You know, all that uh, Clancy Brothers. Uh, nice. 
horrendousness. Uh, but he had a he had a really cool uh, he had a really cool rock you know three dog night and all this. Hey Chris, Chris, how does every Irish folk song start? Oh, okay. Yeah, I, uh, I will admit that I do like some of the Pogues records, but the Pogues are like they're like Irish folk filtered through punk attitude. Oh yeah, I mean yeah, the Pogues. Yeah, the Pogues were definitely one of the more original uh, bands, and so, and and they kind of fit in. You know, and and again, you know, uh, you know, with the curmudgeonness, it's not it's not really snottiness. It's so much as just we're both edgy, we're both opinionated, uh, we both have a low tolerance for bullshit, and our worldviews are are really kind of a remix of a lot of different influences. And so, uh, I actually back in the day, and I still bring it up. Uh, Two of my fictional character heroes are Statler and Waldorf, uh, mm-hmm. who were the two guys up in the balcony during the Muppet Show. And uh, I used to refer to us when we we crashed in an apartment in Astoria, Queens for four years, uh, which I look back on with fondness and, and actually a little bit of fright. Uh, the four years. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I used to refer to us as the Statler and Waldorf of Astoria. Because uh, <laughs> really, I mean, we really kind of were. So... Uh, anyway, so that kind of gives you a, a feel for the kind of stuff that we'll kind of go back and forth on. Uh, so now, uh, okay, so here's here's two random forty five year old guys uh, doing ourselves a discussional podcast. Well, we got to answer a, a, a really important question: Who the hell are we? And uh, we also have to answer a uh, important related question: Why the hell are we here? So, Arturo, who the hell are you? Me, um, I was born in Union City, New Jersey in 1975. My parents were Cuban immigrants. Um, I have two much older brothers, really half brothers, because my mother was married twice. But I grew up with them because she divorced when both of those boys were really young. Then she met my dad, married him. I grew up in that household. And I... Just for speaking from a music perspective, I grew up listening to my brother's vinyl record collections, and it really kind of informed me. Uh, I listened. I grew up listening to 1960s and 70s rock and pop. That's what I grew up with, and the counterculture element of that has pretty much informed my musical taste for the rest of my life, and and my curmudgeonly uh, aspect in my musical taste comes from the fact that. I just don't like a lot, not all, I like some, uh, but I don't like a, the majority of mainstream pop music. It's just not, it's, it's just, it just seems formulaic to me. Um, even the mainstream pop of the other, of the older years, the classic years of the, of the 60s and 70s seemed more heartfelt and more, not to say esoteric, but it felt more meaningful than a lot of the mainstream pop of now. But only anyway, going back to, uh, who am I and why I'm here? Well, uh, that's who I am. That's what I grew up with on my oldest brother's uh, record collection. I grew up with the Beatles, the Eagles, Elton John, Billy Joel, uh, uh, and Rush, oddly enough. <laughs> um, with my other brother, Leo, I grew up with the harder edge stuff, you know, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Queen, stuff like that. And that what informed me as a little boy growing up. As I got older, I got into other stuff on my own. And, but that, that planted the seeds of my music geekness. 
and which really blossomed on, uh, when I was 12, no, 13, I was 13, 13 years old. And I started listening. I tried really, really, really hard to listen to modern rock radio at the time in the late 19, the mid to late 1980s. And at that time it was all just really shitty metal, really crappy hair metal and any other kind of metal. And you would listen to like modern rock radio circa Miami, 1985 to 90. And it's just shitty metal, shitty metal, shitty metal. Oh, that's a good U2 song. Shitty metal, shitty metal, 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 shitty metal. metal. Oh, that's a good REM song. Oh, shitty metal, shitty metal, shitty metal. So I got to the point where I, I, I just, I tried, man. I bought poisons open up and say ah i bought iron maiden somewhere in time i just yeah, tried yeah, yeah. man i tried yeah, i just yeah. couldn't even at that young age I, it, even at that young age my nads couldn't be pumped enough to listen to that shit okay yeah, yeah. so so what i did is that on my own i just retreated into classic rock man when i was a little kid my brothers played records that i really liked so i just turned the dial to classic rock radio and i just stuck there i was stuck there for a few years and from there on my own i got into the who on my own i got into the stones blah 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 and then you know come 1991 i hear nirvana for the first time and that just changed everything for me and changed the way i listened to music and in, a, in an odd way kind of opened me up to other genres as well which is really strange but i'll get into that later on much later in this episode so, and, and why I'm here? Well, I like talking about music. I like shooting the shit. And of course, Chris, I've known for so long. There's no other person I'd rather shoot the shit about music with. Oh, uh, well, uh, I'm very, I'm very tired. <laughs> it's all good. So, uh, yeah, as, as far as me, it kind of resonates. A couple of things, by the way. Uh, it's funnily enough, or amusingly enough, he mentioned uh, Rush. Uh, an old friend of mine, Brian Hyatt, just did a really great story on Pert uh, mm. for Rolling Stone talking to uh, the other guys and the family members and all of that. So That's I got, he, died, he died when he died last year, right? Yeah, he, yeah, he died last year. And, and so this was like a year later and it just was a, a really moving, not like remembrance uh, type of piece. So uh, check that out in Rolling Stone. Uh, one of the few times you'll hear us uh, give a shout out to mainstream uh, music media these days, which basically is just gone to gone to heck. Uh, so anyway, who, so who the hell am I? Uh, Arthur and I have similar backgrounds in some respects. I'm an only child, uh, grew up in Syracuse, New York. Um, the uh, son of a college professor and uh, two nurses. Uh, so, you know, very middle class and, you know, obviously a, um, kid born in the mid seventies, you know, there was that joke that COVID-19 didn't really affect Gen X cause we were all raised by television anyway. Yeah. And so, I mean, I'm, I, I'm very indicative of, of, I'm very indicative of that statement, you know, musical evolution, you know, like I was a big Sesame street fan. And so like, and, um, I just remember, I don't know why, but my favorite song when I was four years old was Herb Alpert's rise which was a huge hit during that. My father got me the eight track to that. I also had a Sesame street eight track. And then there was a couple others in there. I caught onto the Muppets when I was like six or seven. So that's just kind of, you know, sweet influences. Um, and, and that's how I'll talk about this in terms of the influencers on my tastes. First, I'll just mention my father. Um, dad uh, had a, an affinity for all kinds of music. Uh, he, uh, Oddly, was a big fan of Billy Joel's An Innocent Man, which was just random. 
uh, Irish folk. Um, he huge Beatles fan. Um, I think that the single, it really goes like this. I think Thriller was really the first album that I ever adored when I was seven and eight years old. It was, it was two things. It was uh, going to an inner city elementary school and, you know, I mean, basically, you know, uh, Michael Jackson was God uh, during that period, but also like my dad just kind of endorsed it and he loved that album too. And so we would play it all the time on vinyl in my house. Then when I was in seventh grade, he uh, bought me as a Christmas gift, the, um, the Beatles, uh, 1962, 66 and uh, 67, 70 greatest hits albums. I suspect if you're listening to this podcast, you also love those albums and you're also consider them seminal. And I just for a year listened to those every day and just um, it was magic. I didn't understand anything about instruments. I didn't understand about anything about the studio and all that. But it was just for a 12 year old kid, lonely kid with a vivid imagination. It was magic. Uh, and then from there, uh, you know, I went through a period um, when I, between the ages of 14 and like 18, where I watched MTV a whole lot. And it was really two things. It was uh, the Headbangers Ball and it was 120 minutes. And so like Arturo, I caught the Nirvana bug. But before that, I caught a Queensryche bug. Um, that was kind of, yeah, of all, of all things, I know. Uh, first CD I ever had for what it's worth is Hotel California, like everybody else, uh, and, uh, the white album. So, you know, I mean, I didn't start all that unique, but, but I went through this period where I was into all the sort of prog metal, um, like pop prog metal, but also the Seattle stuff. And then it segued into, I just had this obsessiveness, um, in high school. And I, and again, you know, Ricky Rockman and Kurt Loder and all that, they, they need a shout out too. So, you know, the Let's Up and box set, the Pink Floyd box set, there was uh, a period where I was huge into Blood Sugar Sex Magic, uh, the Black Crow Southern Harmony and Musical Companion, which I know uh, Arturo and I count that as one of our favorite records of all time, or it's certainly in the top 5% of, it, of it, is, it is, in my opinion, one of the five greatest Southern rock albums of all time. Yeah, ap- ap- absolutely. And I will step on the grave of Ronnie Van Zant and say that. Yeah, and 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 you know, and there's times when we diverge. Uh, that's not one of them. Uh, and then from there, I would say I got into college, and the next influencer, in- influencer is uh, the other guy on his podcast, Arturo Andrade. Uh, and, and taking taking from there, when we met in fall, the fall semester of 1993, uh, by that point. I had modernized my my taste in music. I, I was barely. I, I had already listened to all the classic rock I ever ever wanted to listen to, and by then I was really you know Nirvana kind of was the gateway for me to like at the time modern rock. What would be what would now be called the the alternative in indie, but it also kind of served as a bridge to the past to the punk the whole punk post-punk era that really was the gap between classic rock and the modern rock that I was listening to at the time. Oh, oh absolutely. And I, I had the same, I had the same experience. So, you know, I, you know, was a huge fan of those grunge bands and it was, you know, strangely enough, it's like, you know, you listen to the new and hot stuff and it turns you on to the actual, the really right. great stuff. That, so, that, that, that had me go back to the Sex Pistols, had me go back to the Ramones, 
Um, had me yeah. go back to talk to talking heads, oddly enough. The clash I didn't get into until I was in college. No, no, I wasn't, yeah. but later in college uh, through yeah. our, our mutual friend, Bob, he got me into the clash. But um, at this point, I was still like bridging between classic and modern rock. And yeah. it was then yeah. when we met that, that I, that uh, I'm a bit ashamed of it now, knowing what the surviving members of Skinnerd are like now, you know, right wing. Yeah radical meatheads that they are but i was a fan of those early leonard skinner records oh yeah just br- brilliant i mean just those first three or four uh skinner records uh i know you're not as big a fan of that last one uh, the 77 record but right. uh, i thought it was all great um they're one of the more more underrated bands in history uh which interestingly enough here, here's the thing i get to college and uh, I meet Arturo and at the time he's, you know, he's working at the dining hall in the dorm and he, so he's wearing his hat and he's got a Hendrix pin on the left and a Zeppelin pin on the right side of his hat. And I'm like, I was such a socially awkward. Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. We, we, no, we, we, I, I jokingly refer to this as a rock nerd podcast. There's a reason because we're nerds. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, uh, and so so I, I, that immediately was intriguing. And then there was like this one day after a Spanish class where I was going over to the record store to just check things out. And Arturo kind of followed me like a puppy. And uh, we just kind of struck up the uh, the friendship uh, from that. And so uh, so kind of speaking to the randomness of how some of this might go, let me back up a second. Uh, without Nirvana, I don't sc- discover the Meat Puppets. Uh, <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't discover uh, Bowie. Uh, without, without, without Nirvana, I don't discover about twenty to thirty bands and artists that I really. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. You know, Sonic Sonic Youth is part of that. Without without, without Pearl Jam, I never get to the Who. Uh, right. Or Neil Young. Or Neil Young. Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, without them, and and you know, Arturo, I'll tell you, I mean, Neil Young was my is my favorite. I mean, I have like thirty of his records. I mean, he's he's incredible. So. For me, it was a journey. So I think that connection with uh, Arturo kind of started it. It was uh, he got me into Skinner and I got him into Zappa. Um, and you can't deny that, that it started with Zappa. And then we kind of and then we kind of both got into fish at about the same time, which is one of those you know, uh, 25 years later. It's kind of like being in an AA meeting. You know, it's like my name is Chris. And I used to be. It a is. It really is. Yeah. You know, like, objectively, I will say I will objectively, I will say. Fish was really good until the late nineties and early aughts. And after that, they started to really suck. Oh yeah. Lawn boy is on the short list of one of the greatest uh, badly produced records of all time. Again. So, you know, Arturo turned me on to a lot of this stuff and then, uh, you know, I kept getting deeper uh, into it and, you know, I, you know, I was starting a newspaper career as a journalist in a former life. I I was a newspaper guy and I decided that I wanted to try you know, what the heck, you know, why not try writing about music? So I answered an ad, an editor and publisher, and it turned out that it was uh, what had become of Addicted to Noise, which a lot of you will probably remember was the second or third e-zine on the internet and was really awesome. Uh, but they had been bought out by an outfit called SonicNet and SonicNet answered this ad. So I get this like fluke opportunity to go work with all these veterans that were working for the San Francisco Chronicle and the, uh, the Rolling Stone and all of this. And so I kind of fluke into this. And so when I'm 23, uh, there's Maddie Karras, there's Chris Nelson, there's Brian Hyatt, there's Michael Goldberg. 
Uh, there is Richard Gear. Yes, his name was Richard Gear, but it's spelled G E H R. No gerbils. Huh? No gerbils. This one. No, no gerbil. No, no. There was no gerbil in this guy's ass. Uh, so, uh, but but I had all these like great mentors and great writers and great editors around me, and it really just started a journey. And like, like you know, it got to the point where I was like buying Dennis Brown records and uh, and like uh, just obscure Turkish stuff from the seventies and uh, David Axelrod. And uh, coincidentally, if nobody out there has actually heard, uh, there was an Axelrod record which I believe is just eponymous. Uh, that DJ Shadow and a couple other people did some remixes of. It was old acetates from the 60s, but it's fascinating because it gets the DJ Shadow uh, drum treatment. And so I went through all that. And so uh, those folks really influenced me. And then uh, lately, uh, there have just been a few folks, um, you know, it just in the last 15 years or so, you know, that uh, friends of mine and folks that I've met that are big into uh, metal or old country um, and and hip hop and these things and and connections. You know, social media has been a big influence on me too. The funniest part of my of my journey is that um, at 12 years old, I bought Appetite for Destruction just because you know, like I already said, you know, we were trying to fit in, and it scared the living hell out of me because uh, I you know I I had never heard you know f bombs and and that th- th- the uh, the inside. Uh, do you remember this, Arthur? The the inside art yeah. to, for destruction. Yeah, uh, the woman that, got raped and yeah, against exactly. the yeah, yeah. And then, so I was all scared. But then in my mid twenties, that, that I, sure has aged well now. Yeah, that sure has aged well now. Yeah, exactly. I've had the epiphany that that's a great record. And so in my the majority of the rock I listen to now is like all this all this met, speed metal. Uh, old seventies, kind of like proto metal, uh, and uh, just all this like kind of uh, over the top uh, metal kind of stuff. And then, and actually, the other day I was listening to Super Unknown for the first time in a while, the Soundgarden record. Uh, so, yeah, which is just awesome, and and which is funny because you know there were songs on there that I didn't much care for as a kid that I actually am now like huge fans of, like Fresh Tendrils is one of those. Uh, so yeah, so again, it's, it's kind of all over the place and it's, it's kind of over the, it's over the place for me as well. And, 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 and this is when you were, you know, when you first moved to New York is exactly the time, more or less exactly the time when I first moved to New York city. And this was a uh, fall of 98. You went in there because of your job. I went in there for graduate school, uh, at NYU, uh, New York university, to get my master's degree in publishing. And eventually uh, we got our apartment in Astoria, Queens. This was about February, 1999. And we lived there together until I guess, oh, two, oh, three. Yeah. End of oh, two. Yeah. When I made the dumbest mistake of my life and moved to Phoenix, although coincidentally a couple of big influences, Jimmy McGahern and, uh, uh, Serene Dominic and a few other writers out there really had a, a nice influence on me too. So I got to give a shout out to my guys uh, from out there. I was the music editor for the Alt Weekly out there for a little bit, and but it was uh, personally, I, you know, it was it was kind of a disaster. But anyway, the, uh, the, the, the New York years were uh, were you know really good um, bonding experience as not just as friends but as music fans as well. And oh, we yeah. would 
we would have our weekend trips. We just go out to the city and go to all the record shops, go to other music. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Late, great other music. I, I would buy so many obscure, weird oh, yeah. underground stuff from there. That's what got me into Serge Gainsbourg. <laughs> right, yeah, and then that kind of stuff, Osmotantes, and yeah. yeah, yeah. I got into some weird exotic stuff that I, that I still love to this day. Yeah. Uh, and then, we saw, and then, we saw some great shows. We saw Slater Kinney. We saw Tool at the Garden. We saw yeah. Bruce Springsteen at the Garden. Yeah. Um, it was the, the most disappointing rock concert I've ever been to. <laughs> at the Springsteen show? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, no, I, I, you hear all these stories, the legend of Springsteen's four-hour marathon shows. No, yeah. it's just really like two hours of performance and the other two hours are him just, you know, preaching yeah. to the crowd. Come on, everybody, sing with the feelings. Shut the fuck up and sing Thunder Road already. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Although, to be fair, that was also when he was like debuting like 41 Shots and Land of uh, uh, Hopes and Dreams and that kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, and look, I, I think the best show we probably saw, my favorite show during that period that we saw together was Wilco at Irving Plaza. In, uh, in oh, yeah. yeah. I saw Wil- during, during my time in New York, I saw Wilco four times, twice in New York and twice in Boston Yeah, uh, with, our, with our mutual friend Bob. And, and, then and, course, and then, of course, through my job, I had some weird experiences that he didn't get to enjoy. Uh, my favorite one of these is Cool Keith, cool Keith at the Wetlands, right before the Wetlands closed. And so what happened was is that Keith, I don't know where the hell he was or what he was doing, but he didn't hit the stage until 2.30. But he comes out, and this was during when he, when he was advertising uh, his worst record by far, Black Elvis. But the... Black Elvis stick was a wax wig with an Ottawa Senators jersey and like a gold lame cape. Uh, but he comes out dressed like that, and it's just this fucking awesome banging show. And it's the, the most memorable part of that is this: uh, he invites all the gals in the in the uh, the crowd to come up with uh, to the stage, and he he does uh, blue flowers and uh, what, what is it, girl? I just want to touch you, or girl, I want to feel you. Those classics from like the Dr. Octagon Ecology yeah, he's, he's doing this Dr. Octagon stuff. And there was this one gal up there who leaves the stage and she's got like, uh, she's got like the big Afro and the hoop, and the hoop earrings and the, uh, the kind of the, the, the leather, the seventies leather couch looking jacket with the, uh, with the tight jeans and the, 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 the big boots with tassels on them. And, and Keith goes, Hey, yo, that's the original black lady. And, <laughs> And it just was uh, Keith, you know, like he's one of my favorite. Like Doctor Doom uh, is in my top ten all-time favorite. Uh, I, I love the story of that you told me of, of Cool Keith that uh, he he got this rec- uh, this small record company wanted to sign him and they signed him and uh, they gave him the advance uh, for his recording deal and he spent it all on porn. Yep, he spent he spent his entire first advance on pornography. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, so this, this is another reason why we love rock so much because it's got so many crazy, weird, interesting people in it. So, which and you know, that's, and that's basically our evolution as rock connoisseurs is basically that. You know, and and yeah. right through our New York years, Chris moved out to Arizona, then moved back out east to get his law degree in New York, mm-hmm. and I was in Houston, and I became an expat moving so to the Chipper. Yeah. And, uh, 
may move to uh, the Czech Republic for a year, South Korea for a few, Chile for another. Now back to South Korea, and I've been here ever since. And ever since then, I'm st- I still passionately follow music. I I subscribe to Mojo Magazine. I have been I have done so since 2002, and it's frankly the only music uh, media that I read. I, I don't yeah. really. I mean, I don't really want to uh, uh, follow Pitchfork or Drowned in Sound or Consequence in Sound because I don't have to. Because A, yeah, Mojo, yeah. Is, Mojo is better writing than all of them. And oh, B, yeah. B, they cover more music. Better writing and they cover – Mojo Magazine covers every genre of music everywhere yeah. in the world. You and they do it very well. And, and, and they very do it well. It's your one-stop shop. They have really great – veteran writers who used to write for Rolling Stone and Spin and Cream and Zigzag, oh, yeah. both, like both British and American writers. Yeah, um, it's a place left for serious writers, basically. Yeah, uh, and, and, and that's where I get all my music info, and I'm, and I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit that, that that's the only music media that I really read and the only one that I really need because it's by far the best one, and it's turned me on to so much – so much music that I, that I, I I just can't – it's overwhelming sometimes how much I have to actually listen to in a month. Yeah. Uh, to, to this point, it's more than just passion. It's, 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 also, it's also kind of a job. So, so if it's going to feel like a job, I might as well do something productive and this podcast yeah. is yeah. a big thing. Yeah, and this is, this is our effort to, uh, to uh, compete, uh, you know, for – you know for, you know, your attention, because look, if this is what you call turning, uh, turning, uh, uh, 60 hour or well, 60 hour, 60 minute bullshit sessions into, uh, into, uh, product and art. Uh, I'll leave you with one, uh, uh, quick excerpt and story, and then we'll, uh, kind of get on with the rest of the episode here. Get on uh, with our worldview. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to get to our worldview next as curmudgeons, but, uh, we, uh, one of the best years of my life was 2002 when we were still in, <laughs> when we were still in Astoria together. And, uh, the funny part was, is basically I had the most successful year of my life, but never got off unemployment because I was, you know, that's, I was getting, <laughs> yeah, I was getting in with, you know, all the folks from the voice. We uh, went to a party at Chuck Eddie's house, uh, Chuck, if you're listening, hello, uh, with all these big shots. And, uh, the highlight of that night is I, uh, I made my way into Chuck's kitchen and found his sake and decided to drink half the bottle of it like an asshole. But, uh, but anyway, it was fun. But basically that summer, he, he was also unemployed, Arturo. And so, uh, so basically what we would do is like sleep all day, uh, get up, um, uh, have some uh, libations, uh, some legal and some illegal. Um, and and that, that, was, that was the stoniest year of my life. Yeah, pretty much mine too. And we would basically we would watch the World Cup and like listen to Sonic Youth and Built to Spill and, and uh, Weezer and, and Weezer, uh, which he hated until he until he you know got into his libations phase and uh, all of a sudden hey they were pretty good. Um, and so yeah, and so it was just like the streak of just like hanging out, and, you know. Just yeah, sort of, I know why it's called the Green Album, man. <laughs> yeah, 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 pretty much. And this is when we came up with uh, what we. Uh, what Arturo lovingly calls the green test, which is actually a real thing, which, who knows? Well, what's, you know, 
Actually, you know what? We, we probably should dedicate an, uh, an episode to entirely to the notion of the green test. Oh, then, dude, about a quarter of my music collection is yeah. thanks to the green test. <laughs> yeah, and actually, that's a concept. And uh, tune in for this, the top 10 green test albums of all time. Uh, as as uh, uh, determined by the curmudgeons. So uh, anyway, th so that's enough about us. The curmudgeon rock report isn't actually brought to you by Zencaster, but it would probably suck a whole lot more if we didn't use this excellent podcasting service. Arturo lives in South Korea. Chris lives in Texas. We needed audio recording software that could record both of our voices natively, securely, cleanly, and professionally. We wanted to avoid Zoom like we would avoid Ed Sheeran. Zedcaster made that possible. With Zencaster, we each use one track to capture our vocals through our computers. Then we upload the individual tracks into Zencaster's built-in post-production engine. Finally, we export the combined, smooth track out to finish editing each episode. Zencaster works awesomely well for recording your interviews with guests, too. So visit Zencaster.com now and start doing your remote audio way better today. So now we're going to get into the, uh, the, the crux in the second half of this episode, and we're going to start giving you something that you can really chew on. And, uh, hey, we, we encourage you to hit us up um, and get a dialogue going here. You can reach us at uh, curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. That's spelled like it sounds. Uh, and then we're also on Twitter uh, at uh, Curmudgeon Pod, uh, spelled like it sounds. You can engage with us on both of, the, uh, um, of those. And we're also going to have a Medium site pretty soon. So uh, we're going to be out there. So if now you understand why we're doing what we're doing and you understand who we are, now uh, every curmudgeon uh, in this rock nerd space has to have a worldview, right? It's kind of like... And because it is, it is rock and roll and the number of the beast is 666, we got six rock points. Yes, we do. Six, 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 baby. That was good. Uh, and so, you know, exactly. So, you know, this idea, it's kind of like, you know, like Dungeons and Dragon uh, podcast, you know, that's all about worldview and that's what makes them so entertaining. Uh, but this is so, okay. So the worldview according to the curmudgeons. Uh, and so we have uh, six points uh, that we've come up with uh, to cover. And again, we'd love your feedback on these. Uh, but this is kind of, if you take uh, these points, this really captures our feelings about rock and roll, about the current situation here in 2021, about the evolutionary relationship, uh, how, you know, the aging of rock, the, the evolution devolution, the re-evolution, and where things stand now, and all of that. So uh, let me get started. Uh, point one, a loss of communal experience does not need to equal the end of the art form. Uh, perhaps y'all have noticed that uh, we're running out of young bands that can fill a stadium. Uh you know, the last time I checked, we needed to get like Jay-Z and Beyonce and a couple other rappers to get to Yankee Stadium level. Um, More importantly, like in, in terms of rock music, there are no contemporary bands that can do stadiums. Like the, yeah, the, the, yeah, no, the, exactly. young, the youngest rock group that can play stadiums, is the Foo Fighters and yeah, Green Day. And yeah, those, okay. guys are those guys are classic rock at this point. Yeah, exactly. So maybe the mate, and that's arguable, 
Uh, Dave Matthews can probably still do it. Um, but and that's classic rock. And then, see, this is the reason why we're never going to completely get rid of the Rolling Stones and the U2s and, you know, these these old man bands that, uh, you know, we're going to rag on quite a bit uh, through uh, our curmudgeonly path. Uh, but we still love their early stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we do. We still we, we still love the first couple of decades before they went to shit. But um, so so here we are. Um, and we're to the point where there's not really that, you know, it's hard to be lazy and, and be a rock fan now, but you know, there's still the love for the art form. There's still the appreciation. And it's really one of these things where, you know, like, you know, I mean, I hate to be cliche here, but you know, Neil Young had it right. You know, rock and roll can never die. Um, and I mean, this has sort of become, uh, real in a sense of, okay, here we are, we're aging and we grew up of all this. And, you know, we learned about the scene and, and, you know, we are children of the 20th century. You know, the, the old joke is that if you have a one, uh, in front of, uh, your, uh, birth date, you never have to worry about, uh, getting denied alcohol ever again. Uh, but look, uh, we're recording this on Monday, uh, uh, January 18th, on the morning of the 17th, uh, Phil Spector died. Now, uh, say what you want about Phil Spector, the human being, and mm-hmm. and the convicted murderer, but as a icon, as a figurehead, as a producer, as a uh, visionary, uh, as a promoter of rock and roll, uh, he is definitely one of the uh, forefathers uh, of the genre, at least for uh, white folks finding their way onto radio and kind of defining everything that came before it. I mean, really, you can make the argument that without the wall of sound stuff, Motown might not have caught on the way it did. I mean, that's that's arguably arguable, but uh, very arguably arguable. But you could you could make a connection. You'll find, by the way, that I, I do this more than Arturo. I make these uh, I make these random connections and and all of this. But uh, and then also earlier, uh, like a few months back, Little Richard died. And so these guys were in their 80s. And so the pioneers of rock and roll are dropping dead. And then even, you know, this applies to uh, the later guys, too. Eddie Van Halen just died. Uh, Like we said, Neil Peart died last year. And so all of these icons that we grew up with are now starting to uh, literally fade away and literally starting to die. But um, the stuff ages well. The stuff is still in the canon. Uh, we still um, get uh, solace uh, from it. We still are informed by it. There's a lot of those things that truly are timeless and are like Orson Welles movies where you listen to the albums or you listen to the songs and they're never the same thing uh, twice. And so, uh, it, again, it's it's just a really strange era to be this age and to see, you know, we look, you know, Paul McCartney and Bob Dylan, uh, and Jagger, like when those guys dies, it's going to be kind of like Gandhi dying. Um, I know it's going to be a worldwide mourning. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, your thoughts on that, Arturo? Well, yeah. I mean, and, and jumping off from that, I mean, you're talking about you know the old stuff, the old immortal, timeless stuff. The second uh, point to the curmudgeon worldview, it has to do with uh, modern contemporary music. Um, basically, the premise is this, 
there's more good music than ever before. I don't know about more. There's just as much good music as ever before. You just have to work harder than ever to find it. And that's because of the way we consume music nowadays. Uh, everything is now on the internet. Everything is either downloaded and streamed. And everything is everywhere at the same time. And it's mass media saturation. And a lot of people just don't know where to go. They don't know what websites to go to. And and there's so many websites devoted to music. So many podcasts devoted to music. uh, And we're contributing to that now. Um, uh, You just have to know where and how to do it. My way of doing it, and I I don't recommend this to anyone, but my way of doing it is just finding one reliable source and stick with it. Okay, and in, in my case, it's Mojo Magazine, you know, the world's greatest music magazine. And anyone who's a serious hardcore music geek, that should be your Bible to find, to not just learn about older music, but learn about new music as well. So it is possible. And the reason we make this the curmudgeonly second point is to make an anti curmudgeon, an anti curmudgeon point. Um, it's very easy to be cynical, like a lot of people our age and our generation and older saying, oh, new music sucks. There's no good music anymore. And no, there is. There's a lot of good music. It's just harder to find because of the death of the record label industry, where everything was fed to you on a platter. And you had uh, venues like MTV and rock radio or hip hop radio, whatever kind of radio, where you can hear it. Oh, this sounds good. Let me see the video on MTV. Oh, this looks good. Okay, let me go buy the CD. Well, we don't have that anymore. Yeah, What we have is social media and YouTube. And social media and YouTube are so international at this point. YouTube is MTV now, basically. And it's so international. And we're so flooded and saturated with information. We don't know really where to go. And there are places to go. You just have to find out and work hard to find them. And that's the key issue. You got to work hard. If you're a real music fan, you got to work hard to find the good music. Harder than you than you had to back in the days when in, 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 in corporate media and, and when the music business was much more corporatized and everything was fed to you on a spoon. Yeah, so that's yeah, exactly. And I don't mean to cut you off there, but it's uh, that's one of our missions. Actually, is we work hard so you don't have to. Um, and so that's kind of one of the things. So if we can point you to in the right directions, uh, we will. Uh, here's a surprising point to that. And this is kind of what you were talking about. It's not just work hard. You know, so you're talking about social media as kind of a conduit. Uh, you know, YouTube, uh, you know, YouTube actually right now is more reliable than like, you know, Pirate Bay and Torrance and all that. Sure. Kind of and, it's, sure. and, it's, and it's just simpler. Uh, but the amazing thing is, and I've been learning this over the last few months, is that TikTok is driving a lot of uh, musical tastes that break out. And it's almost by a, by a fluke that, you know, somebody. TikTok, TikTok just made Fleetwood Mac a shitload of money. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, and you guys probably all know this story that there's this, uh, there's this dude that worked at a factory in Idaho who uh, used to skateboard to work or, you know, one of these guys who would like, you know, uh, uh, get on his skateboard and grab onto the back of a truck and, <laughs> you know, and, and roll the work that way. But he, he made it, he somehow made a video of himself uh, drinking uh, ocean spray and uh, lip syncing. Was he riding a scooter? No, he was riding a skateboard as far as I know. Oh, uh, okay. And he uh, basically, he, you know, lip syncs to Fleet, Fleetwood Mac's dreams for like 45 seconds while sipping on cranberry juice. 
Well, a couple of days later, uh, you know, this started to kind of spread. Uh, Mick Fleetwood joined TikTok for the sole purpose of mimicking this video. And then from there, the thing exploded and Dreams ends up back on the top in the top 10 on Billboard. And this dude in Idaho was able to pay for a three hundred fifty thousand dollar house in cash. And so this <laughs> this is like modern modern music distribution at its finest. But but even st- even so, I mean, look, there's stuff that's getting on the charts where like some 15 year old kid decides to make like a goofy dance video to like some song or some electric song, electronic song and it blows up viral. And then all of a sudden that track that they used and some whatever, you know, dance mix record or hip hop album becomes a huge hit. Uh, so again, as far as the stuff that breaks out, you never know. And, and so even, you know, to Arturo's point, you know, not only the mojos and, uh, the word of mouth and the clubs and YouTube and all that, uh, you also have to pay attention to the TikToks and all that. You know, so you have to kind of pay attention to the happy accidents and be ready to pounce on them when they happen. So thank you, China. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, China. Thank you, Korea, for that matter. Uh, you know, the K-pop thing is is big. Um, that's gonna be that's gonna be a future episode for our show for sure. About uh, you know, what the hell is up with K-pop? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I live here, and I I, I do like Korean music, but I, I tend to like more of the older stuff, the pre-K-pop Korean music that yeah. seemed to have a beating heart and soul, not like modern k-pop which is like robot music for zombies to dance to but yeah, that's just my, so, that's my personal opinion <laughs> yeah and, you know and it's strange because it's like uh uh you know neither of arturo and i i i will confess i don't understand k-pop at all i mean like what the hell is this and so it's it's really arturo's mission to find like a 27 year old gal uh, there in Korea to come on the show and just kind of explain this to us. It's like, what the doesn't hell? Have to, doesn't have to be a girl. The guys are into it too. It's okay. all over. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, well, yeah, well, that actually would be kind of more interesting because, you know, to me, male K-pop fans are kind of like bronies that I have a hard time wrapping my now, head up. The, they're hipster douchebags who like K-pop ironically. Well, yeah, it's kind of like the Paps Blue Ribbon of the, two, of the 2020s, I guess. But um yeah, you know, who, 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 you know, go figure. So, uh, and, and really this kind of brings us to, uh, to another point that I'll let Arturo share that, you you know, you have to work harder, but the thing is, is that. It's still you know, there. It's yeah, there. It's still there, but uh, it's a, uh, it's, it's weird. It's, it's wider than ever, but it's smaller than ever. Yes. And, that gets, and that gets to our third point. Yeah, quantitatively, there are more rock bands out there than ever before. But as far as access to them and and the exposure they get is more limited than ever before. And that's basically because rock has become has gone the way of jazz. Let's face it. It's no longer at the zeitgeist of popular culture, not even in the U.S., not even in the U.K., really. Um, it, it's because you don't hear rock music on BBC One anymore. Rock music is now a niche genre, just like jazz. However, however, it's still unlike other genres that have sold that sold their soul really early, i.e., hip hop. You know, rock, generally speaking, is still counterculture. It is still like to be to be rock and roll is still to be a bit anti-establishment. You know, and it still has that it, it still has that stigma to it. But in the way I see it, it's a positive stigma. 
<laughs> I don't want to be part of commercial mainstream culture, even though I know I'm saying this while we're doing a podcast, but still, um, I don't want to be part of those lame motherfuckers. I don't want to be like that. Uh, I, I only cut my hair short because my hair is really gray and I suffer from seborrheic dermatitis. I got to keep my hair short. If not, I wouldn't grow long as hell and I would never grow a beard. Fuck those hipster douchebags. So when you're listening, when you, if you're still listening to rock music and, and a, a lot of what counts as indie rock is not really rock. It's just indie pop or retro 80s synth pop. So that's another thing that pisses me off that we'll get to that yeah, during, 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 during the course of this of this podcast as the episodes go on. But it, rock is one of the few genres that has still maintained its anti-establishment tag to it. Uh, unless you're talking about, you know, the 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 nickelback derived shit that you hear in, you know, conservative red state rock radio, but I don't acknowledge that. <laughs> I'm talking about re- real yeah, rock. Real yeah, rock. Hey, you know that. But anyway. Anyway, so that's point so that, that's point number three. Neil Young once said, Hey, hey, my my, rock and roll will never die. Well that may be true. There are certainly some bands and artists whose careers should. The next three episodes of the Curmudgeon Rock Report will comprise the Bovine Trilogy, the first of which will find Chris and I each take a curmudgeonly shit on five of some of rock music's most sacred cows. Listen for some hot take carnage and imagine some highfalutin British music journalists' heads exploding next week on the Curmudgeon Rock Report. Now we were just talking about uh, this. You know, you've got this, you've got this large swath of music that you have to work hard to find, and you know, rock is a niche and a counterculture. So there's still a lot of cool stuff out there, and you can still be a rebel by wearing, you know, like a, you know, a, I don't know. I mean, you've got what about fifty rock t-shirts at this point? You know, like like wear a Zappa t-shirt. I mean, I just bought a Prince symbol t-shirt, so you can still do that kind of stuff. But uh, it leads to another point, too, that, you know, sometimes too much of a good thing is not necessarily the best thing. Yeah, I've had this discussion um, many times with other music fans, even the ones of our generation. And this is something that I've noticed. And even reading Mojo, and I love Mojo. But one thing, one thing I've noticed about reading Mojo magazine, the, the, the two complaints, I only have two complaints about Mojo. Number one, they give hip hop way too much short thrift they uh they 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 give way more focus on folk music than hip-hop which i think is unfortunate because you know i i like that song by cracker what the world needs now is another folk singer like i need a hole in my head <laughs> okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, need, we, we, we need less you know oversensitive you know idiots with lame white people with acoustic guitars talking about lost love we need more hip-hop like run the jewels all right stuff like yeah, that yeah, absolutely. Anyway, that's my first complaint about hip-hop they, about mojo they don't do as much as much um a hip-hop focus as they should and number two they give way 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 too many four-star reviews of yeah. of music not everything can be a classic, okay? Yeah. <laughs> there needs to be more discernment, I think, in Mojo. And then to extrapolate from that, it just makes me think about how much fucking music there is out there. Oh, my God. I understand that the, the fall of the, or the end 
of the record label industry means artists and bands have more freedom than ever before to do however they want to do, whatever whatever they want to do, however they want to do it. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing for the, you know, that's a good thing for the band, for the artist. And I acknowledge that. That's great. Yeah. Wonderful. But you got to look at it from the music listener's perspective. Um, like the, the, and the point is this, number four, you know, there is something to be said about the old label A&R man as gatekeeper, meaning that there's something to be said for quality control. And there's such a thing as being overly prolific. And there's such a thing as music listeners being overly saturated. We only have so much time to listen to so much music. Yeah. And, and I, I, there's a part of me, I, I do understand from the artist's perspective, having the shackles off and letting them go out there and do what they want as much as they want. Okay, great. Hey, I love Ty Siegel. As far as contemporary rock, to me, he's rock and roll Jesus. Okay. Yep. Yeah, that, that, guy, that guy puts out an album a year. Sometimes he puts out two or three albums a year, but they're usually like covers albums or live recordings or collaborations. Yeah. But proper, 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 proper Ty Siegel albums is usually one a year. And I'm okay with that. But then you have some artists and some bands who do two a year, three a year, three in two years, five albums in three years. And he's like, dude, come on. There's only so much we can listen to. And there's such a thing as oversaturation. There's such a thing as quality control. I think yeah, it's important. A lot of garbage, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, just, it's important for an artist in a band. I know some artists will hate hearing this, you know, e- equating creating art with like a mass producing uh, a consumer product. But believe it or not, they do kind of go hand in hand together. Yeah. And there's some, there is some, there is something to be said for quality control. Again, you know, yeah. you, you have you have you have you have fifty songs. They can't all be good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, look, I mean, there's something to be said. You know, again, there's, uh, you know, the the Clive Davises, the David Geffens, the Herb Albert, the Ahmed Erdogans. Yeah, uh, you know, th- they're the ones that found all these amazing uh, artists and or Danny Goldberg and you know these folks. But they they, kind groomed of, them. they groomed them and, and they kind of and they, and they were filtered. You know? Yeah, they groomed them. They filtered them. And so uh, there's a reason why, like, Nevermind is a really strong 11 track record. There's a 12. reason. Well, 12. OK. Uh, <laughs> see, yeah, he's going to correct me like that all the time because he's, you know, he's he, he's he's like, a, I don't know, I'm like a poet. And, you know, he's you know, he's he's more like a drill sergeant. Um, with this kind of stuff, but anyway, uh, yeah. And so you get these really strong, shorter, you know, just really, you know, no dead space kind of records and all the shit stays on the cutting floor because that's why they call it the cutting floor. Uh, so like, like, you know, said, and, and I'll let Arturo go on a rant on this one. Uh, I'll just say two words, uh, Robert Pollard. Oh boy, Robert Pollard. I like you know what I generally speaking, I do like guided by voices, but man, like good lord. In a recent interview with Mojo, you know, they interviewed him and and he, and he say and they asked, Wow, you Robert, you, you write a lot of songs, man, all the time. You write why do you write so much? Why do you put out two, three albums a year? And he goes, Well, yeah, you know, I mean, if you write a hundred songs, twenty of them have got to be good. And my thing is like, okay, yeah, 20 of them are good. That means the other 80, the other 80% is shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't, don't, don't put that out. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the, uh, yeah, it's the, uh, you know, it's the, yeah, it's kind of a rock and roll version of the 80-20 principle that, you know, generally speaking, if you have like a hundred things out there and a hundred like uh, snippets, 20 of them will probably be usable and be, be pretty good. Um, yeah, it's, um, it, you know, it, like you said, it is a, it is a strange phenomenon. I, I always used to say that uh, I always kind of appreciated, and here's another one, you know, for people our age, a reference, uh, the magnetic fields, uh, don't use your alternative uh, word uh, for them. Oh, I, I don't use that anymore. I, I, I'm a refined adult now. Okay. Well, there you go. The, there, there's the magnetic field 69 love songs, which got a lot of huge, you know, obviously the New York critics adored that it was either first or second in the Pazin job that year. Uh, uh, my editor, Maddie Karras adored that record. I heard it. And I wanted to rename it 23 Good Love Songs. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, look, this, the, the great stuff on it, like, you know, Papa Was a Rodeo and Chicken With His Heads Cut Off and all that is just genius. And Stephen Merritt definitely has his place in the indie rock pantheon. But yeah, it just, I mean, that was kind of a pre-version of the same kind of thing, that there's got to be, uh, got to be an editor. Uh, however, and this kind of segues into the, uh, into the fifth point, uh, with that record, uh, there was some stuff on there that obviously was bad, but it was willfully bad, and it sure. was and it was willfully dumb, which could be really charming, and and so this leads to uh, our our fifth point, something that I've always just kind of said, and kind of defines half my tastes. Uh, dumb does not necessarily equal bad. Sure. Uh, so. <laughs> Dumb can also be clever. Yeah, see dumb. the Ramones. <laughs> say, say, see who? The Ramones. Oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, dumb. Dumb can be clever. Uh, and look, dumb. Dumb can be like brilliant too. Because think about this: uh, James Brown's stuff from like '69 to '75. Uh, a lot of that stuff is dumb. But man, is it brilliant! You, yeah. you've got all this wonderful improvisational, you know, like the the trombone stuff on that stuff is incredible. The arrangements are incredible. The grooves are incredible. But the stuff coming out of James Brown's mouth and the uh, and and a lot of it is just like, man, this is really really dumb. And mm-hmm. you know, I feel brain cells dying, like listening to James, like like literally, like. Uh, He's got a track that, that is like uh, like 20 minutes long, and it's just the same groove going on. But basically, it's just him while the groove is on. He's just like having just like ridiculous conversations with all the session musicians, you know. And <laughs> but that's funny. That's the funny part. Yeah, no, and and that's what I'm saying. It's, it's hilarious. It's hilarious. I'm not ragging on it. What I'm saying is is that this is this is like some of the greatest dumb that's ever been done. And then you've got some classic rock stuff like ZZ Top does <laughs> a, lot of dumb, a lot of dumb shit, but uh, Billy Gibbons was a genius in the sense of like one of the great dumb formulas for success of all time was taking like blues rock, speeding it up, and then using like drum sequencers and drum, drum machines with it. And it's like the weirdest, strangest, dumbest thing, but it worked. And yeah. there was a reason Eliminator was so huge because it's Elect- a huge- Elect- Electro Blues Boogie. 
yeah, it was a really good record, but it's just dumb. And and again, you know, I mean, these guys, I mean, I mean, like, I swear, to, I, I swear, like, like half of those guys' songs are really about like Bukaki and like like kinky stuff. If you really listen to it, yeah, yeah, yeah. horny horny women and lots of whiskey and yeah. No. <laughs> You know, absolutely. There's not a lot that separated ZZ Top lyrically from ACDC. No, not really. Except ACDC had more fighting in it. Yeah, exactly. ACDC had more fighting and more drinking. Um, And they're Australian, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and and then again, you know, you know, this is the thing. You appreciate it because rock and roll, I mean, like, uh, you know, ACDC is is consistent because like what what are their two main topics? Uh, drinking and fornicating, and and so you know, like giving the dog a bone, which you know, and all that stuff. Now, look, Back in Black is like uh, that may actually be like the uh, Axis Bold is love of dumb records. Uh, yeah. it, it's just a monumentally masterpiece dumb record. Um, and you know, AC, yeah, and then yeah, exactly, and then AC, and. and, and and look to their credit, like you know, the uh, the Young Brothers and Johnson realized this because they essentially made that same record uh, every couple years for the last forty years. Um, I think they just released one last year. It basically was a really terrible version of Back in Black. <laughs> you know, just just big fat riffs with you know lyrics about drinking and fucking. So I mean, it's it, you know. So anyway, uh, there's a lot. Celebrate dumb. I mean, look. Uh, one one of the great celebrated songs, and you know, we were talking about this earlier. Uh, Wop Baba Loop a Wop Bam Boom. Uh, do you know that, what Tutti, Do you know what Tutti Fruity actually is? Yeah, I you know the original version of uh, of Tutti Fruity, and yeah, we're going to get in trouble with the uh, with the Tipper Gore. Uh, uh, well, no, 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 we're not because we're, we're we're not. All we're saying is what it is. It back back in the old days, back you know early twentieth century, up until the mid twentieth century, and Little Richard was a gay black man in the South, yeah. right? It, it, it was Southern slang among black people for anal sex. Yes, that's, that's what Tutti Fruity. Yeah, and in his case, gay animal sex. Like the, I, I don't know the lyrics, but as I, I, my understanding is the first version of uh, Tutti Frutti was way dirtier and way bodier. So, yeah, yeah. and so, yeah, and, and again, and so, look, you know, I mean, genius doesn't necessarily equal like in, you know, intellectual. Genius can just be like just dumb, and you know, there's a lot of lightning in a bottle, and that's going to be another topic that sure. kind of defines this podcast too, is this appreciation for these lightning in a bottle moments. And that kind of is what makes uh, rock and, and popular music so special um, is you get these kind of singular, uh, you know, monuments, half of them to dumbness, half of them to brilliance. Um, and so, so that's the thing. Dumb does, is not bad. So dumb is okay. If you think something's dumb, don't write it off, you know, give it a chance to listen to it and appreciate it. And, you know, and then that really just kind of, I think our final point is, look, you know, I think it's, there's an evolution. Like we said, you know, uh, it makes you kind of do a double take when you realize that back in black is now a 40 year old record. Uh, and so, and we are, you know, in our mid forties, uh, this, like we said, this rock and roll journey, uh, starts when we're like seven or eight years old. 
Uh, and, you know, look, it's been a defining thing for us. And now here we are. And uh, now we're to the point where we remind ourselves all the time to never forget what brung you and just keep evolving with it. And, you know, one of the things that I'm stay learning. True, straight, stay true to who you are, but keep an open mind. Yeah. Keep, stay true to who you are, but keep an open mind. Um, you know, always revisit uh, stuff and try to be fresh with it. And, you know, I'll be in the car sometimes and I just have an instinct. You know what? I haven't heard this album in 15 years. What the heck? Let me, let me listen to it. And then what you realize is, is that listening as a middle-aged adult is much different than listening during your formative years. Um, case, case in point, I never thought I would see the day when I would admit to myself and to my friends, wow, I really like those last two Taylor Swift albums. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and they're really good. <laughs> yeah. And, and they're, they're actually excellent records. Um, yeah. And, and, and again, you know, she's, she's evolved. And so the idea is, you know, we hear these things because, you know, as she's matured, she's really come up with an original voice but it's in the traditions of the Joni Mitchells and the, you know, the directors and I, I, I'd much rather listen to her than of the, uh, some of the other, like, uh, I, I, I hate to put people in these categories, but you know, a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of, you know, female singer songwriters get lumped in to the female singer songwriter movement. You know, people like Phoebe Bridgers and Laura Marling and and I, I do like Laura Marling and yeah. but and others of her ilk and I, I think Taylor yeah. Swift. Listen to those last two Taylor Swift records. I think she's better than all of them. Who knew? Oh no, she's way better than all of them. I mean, look, I mean, I've never been a huge fan. Who, who, who knew she would become our uh, or this this modern era's new Joni Mitchell? Yeah, I mean, definitely. You know, nobody had a better year in in music than Taylor Swift. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's I mean, unquestionably. You know, she took that lockdown and she made these two terrific uh, sort of organic, uh, uh, you know, folk rock pop records. Confirmed her, confirmed her not only as, you know, a great, you know, commercial, commercially successful artist, but just a wonderful, you know, artist, artist as well. But she actually makes great work. But here's the thing that she always has been a huge talent. She's always been, you know, original and, you know, and creative and all that. She co-writes all her stuff. Um, and she's always I had. Thought she wrote, I thought she wrote all her stuff all her, by herself. Yeah, she does. I mean, she either writes it or co-writes it. You know, this time she had some collaborators. And and so it's either, you know, she so she does all this. But, and you know, she, I mean, I think she became a hit in Nashville when she was 16. She started out in country. That I just didn't like her stuff. I mean. Yeah, same, same here. She she was like dashboard confessional as a chick uh, for uh, for quite a while and it was a turnoff and it was just kind of I thought it was a little rambly but then she had a period like a few years ago when she was doing like the deliberate poppy stuff which was excellent you know like set it off and that kind of stuff and now here she, she is she learned, she learned how to edit herself yeah basically and so there's a point you know some of these artists you know they get better as they get with age I mean sure. a classic. I mean, another one to mention there is Not a Surf, which yeah. was terrible in the 90s. And then by 02 was one of the best bands in America. And now they're still doing stuff. They may be the best band in America. Um, they're one of them. They're right up there with uh, some of the other middle-aged bands like Drive, Drive-By Truckers and 
some right. of the other, and you know, Jason Isbell and, and well, some, you know, I said the best band in America right now is Lightning Bolt, but that's for another. Uh, yeah, but that's your opinion. Uh, I, <laughs> well, I would say that the the best guy making records uh, in America right now is Kurt Vile. I mean, he's he's the yeah, best. Yeah, he's, but, he's. I'm a big Vile fan myself. But yeah, but to the point, it's just kind of interesting that I've listened to two records in the last couple of months that kind of bring this home, this point home. So uh, Tom Petty's Wildflowers, which I really liked when it came out my sophomore year of college, I, I acknowledged was a terrific uh, pop record with some really rocking stuff on it. Um, I hear it now and there's just an emotional uh string running thread running through the record and there's a depth of feeling on that record and some really clever musical things going on uh, that album is an absolute masterpiece and, oh, yeah I, agree. I think i think it's his greatest work yeah, yeah. And, and and what it shows me is that uh i wasn't ready at 19 to appreciate the fullness and depth and uh, maturity of that record. I had to, you know, I had to grow up myself to kind of catch up uh, with that record. Now, at the same time, there's also the experience of listening to Outkast's Equemini, which, mm -hmm. which is a tremendous hip hop record. I would put it in as one of the top 20 hip hop records ever made still because of its uh, originality, artisticness. And just those two guys just, you know, technically are just brilliant. But that album definitely is a child of the late nineties. It's, it's, uh, HBCU kids in Atlanta, <laughs> you know, basically, uh, making music, smoking weed and, and, uh, and just kind of rambling on and, you know, with the references and, and all of that. And, you know, the production, I mean, even the, the Delta between the production of that record and then like the one they did in 2003, um, there was almost like sort of a charming lo-fi-ness to it. And, and it hasn't really aged well. It's a great record, but it's not something that I would use as a as a go to anymore. Um, and so those are that's our worldview uh, in total. Um, if you disagree with us or you thought that we were like like rambling like crazy people, definitely reach out to us at curmudgeonrock at gmail .com or hit us up at uh, at curmudgeonpod on uh, Twitter and uh, give us feedback. So. Uh, what I just let's, wrap, let's, let's wrap this up with uh, our next two mini segments. And the first one will be something that I know is dear to Chris's heart. We're each going to name, you know, if, if, if this whole first episode is about us, and we promise this will be the only episode that's going to be about us. From here on out, it's going to be about other <laughs> other music. Yeah, this, yeah, this, yeah, we're going to yeah, have teams. Well, we're going to focus on the artists. We're going to focus on the world. But uh, look, if, if we're going to build affinity, we got to start somewhere, right? So, right, right. so this is our so this, so this one is we're each going to put in a defining or seminal record in our lives that either changed our lives or gave direction to our lives. Chris, start with you. Okay. I mean, for me, I mean, I mentioned it uh, earlier. Uh, although I have to segment this into as a kid and as an adult, because like I said, it really took off when I was 23. So as a kid, it's the Beatles greatest hits records, um, the red album, the blue album, uh, and just, you know, catching on into the uh, brilliance of the three songwriters and the evolution, like listening to it from Love Me Do all the way through the long and winding road is just kind of an extraordinary evolution. And it's just this sweep 
that goes with it. And, you know, basically, the you know, as they get older and add mature, more on drugs or, or they get, you know, basically they were able to free themselves from the confines of the mop tops and the suits and Ed Sullivan and all that and just sort of start experimenting. And just so it's extraordinary. And, it, and that's sort of where it starts. As an adult, um, I can really uh, define it very simply and very quickly. Uh, Built to Spills, Keep It Like a Secret. Um, it's it's the one album that every year since 1999, I have come back to over and over and over and over again because it's a really special, really original uh, record um, of four to five minute long, accessible prog rock songs <laughs> with yeah. all, the, all these odd ass time signatures, these brilliant solos, a lot of great pop uh, lyrical concepts and just uh, the record is an experience. And it's one of those kaleidoscope records that every time I listen to it and I've probably listened to it, I'm not exaggerating, probably about 2000 times over the last 22 years, uh, I get something new out of it every single time. And so, uh, so that's how I would answer that one. How about you, Artie? Me? Um, well, I already mentioned this one earlier when I was 16 years old. And yeah, Nirvana's Nevermind. I know that sounds cliche for a lot of people of either Gen X or tail end of Gen X like we are, or even people a little younger than us who, who, caught, who caught on to Nirvana later. But yeah, no, Teen Spirit. I mean, not Teen Spirit, the album, Nevermind. That was, that was basically what shut the door on classic rock and opened up the door to the lesser known punk alternative of the late seventies and the eighties, and then to the forward to the future. And it really did, you know, just alter the way I change music, alter the way I listen to things, altered, altered my expectations. Um, and it, it really, it really was the one that it, musically, yeah, of course, of course, musically, cause it was a force of nature, but it was also a force of nature in songwriting and it was also a force of nature in lyricism and, and it, thought-provoking lyricism. If, 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 oh, yes, I had to have the lyric sheet in front of you because at, at that young age, I wasn't sure what Kurt Cobain was singing half the time. But I eventually got around to getting the lyrics on paper. And yeah, there's there, there, a lot of themes and topics and subjects that he hit on that record. You know, not, not just the, you know, I'm so sad and lonely shit, but the whole aspect of social alienation, of, uh, of feeling like a minority in your own country even. And, and, and there's a, there's a, there's a breadth of empathy there for women's rights and for gay rights, which uh, really didn't exist in rock and roll uh, at the time or even before. Oh, and it did, but very, very, very few exceptions. Yeah, it wasn't quite as it, yeah, it wasn't quite as pronounced from a male uh, mainstream rock band exactly. until then. Exactly. Yeah, and, and that that was important. So on a lyrical level, on a musical level, it it it, it brought me to the Velvet Underground. It brought me to um brought me to all the punk rock stuff of the 70s. It brought me to the underground, the, the long lost underground. Well, it's not long lost anymore, but back then it was the forgotten uh, pioneering underground stuff of the eighties American rock, you know, the, the stuff of that, um, uh, that, that Michael uh, Azerod wrote about, yeah. uh, you know, bands like Husker Du and the replacements and Sonic youth and the meat puppets and, and dinosaur junior. And, and, and Nirvana really was a gateway to all of that and everything that was to come. 
a lot of the music that I love now, I probably wouldn't like if I hadn't had, if, if you know, if Kurt Cobain hadn't, you know, trained my ear. It's like, hey, you know, listen to this a different way. So, yeah. so, so, so Nirvana was that. Nirvana's never mind, even though I, I still prefer in utero. But as far as seminal, that was uh, as far as, as setting the terms for my music listening uh, journey in life. That album was it for me, aside from the early vinyl records of, of from my old brother's uh, vinyl record collection. Gotcha. Okay. And then we're going to end this episode with something that we'll do at the end of all of our episodes. Yep. Uh, we're going to go into our vault, which, you know, at this point is kind of like, uh, you know, that it's, it's a deep trench of, of stuff. And we're going to pull out something from our vault and just kind of give some love uh, to an old record. Uh, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's obscure or uh, whether it's mainstream, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. And so uh, Arturo, take it away. Yeah. My pick um, is an album that if you're an older music geek, born in the 50s and possibly born in the 60s, you may know who this band is. Um, they are a duo from New York in the 1960s called Silver Apples. Uh, and they were, by today's standards, they would still be considered bold and innovative and weird and unusual. Back then, it was just otherworldly. Basically, they were two, a two-person group, a drummer and another guy who basically played electronic oscillators. He would have a rig of three or four electronic oscillators. He would play one with his feet using foot pedals. He would play another one with his hand with the controls. And he would play another one with his other hand, with his other hand and sometimes having to use his elbows to create melodies, counter melodies, uh, certain pulses and bass lines. And while the drummer is doing his octopus thing. And what these guys did was so revolutionary. It was really just as as bold and as new and as different as anything the Velvet Underground did. And they were from the same city. And what, this, what Silver Apples did really just set the tone for a lot of what you would see in the 1970s with what the quote-unquote Krautrock groups that can and no, I, I hate that word Krautrock. It's offensive. But anyway, um, well, the German bands of the 70s and other electronic explorations, they really set the tone for that. They really had a big influence on what eventually what would eventually become house music uh, the Detroit, in Detroit and Chicago house in the 1980s and going on into the 90s with the techno stuff. That came out with groups, you know, like like um, uh, the Orb and Chemical Brothers, who I adore, and uh, Prodigy and stuff like that. But Silver Apples, they only had two albums in 1968, self-titled, and 1969's Contact. But I'll go with the first album because it's the first one, right? It's the one that introduced them to the world, even though only like 10 people were listening <laughs> at the time. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but, but it, it, it's, it's, it's really one of the most genuinely, mind-blowingly, startlingly original works of musical art you'll ever hear. It came out in 1968. Um, both those guys are dead now. Um, Simeon Cox, who was the, the electronic oscillator manipulator, died just last year. Uh, and that, that, that group, if you listen to it now, it, it sounds like it could be recorded right now. Um, it's so it's so innovative, so different. 
uh, a lot of what a lot of what we now call electronic music is probably wouldn't exist without it because the very few people who heard that album became electronic musicians themselves. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. You, know, you, probably, you probably don't get like "Bang on a Can" and uh, Steve Reich and a lot of that stuff uh, without yeah. Silver Apples for sure. Uh, so yeah, definitely check out Silver Apples. I mean, that's a good call. Uh, so for my vault, uh, I went kind of, uh, it's interesting, you know, Arturo said that 10 people listened to it, uh, Silver Apples back then, and then it broke out. Well, mine, I think was listened to by 10 people in 1982. And I think only 10 people still remember it. Uh, but it, but it's a great album. Uh, it's, uh, the Johnson crew, uh, lost in space. And so this is the Johnson crew and it's spelled J O N Z U N crew. Uh, now the story here is, uh, there was a little bit of a dance music, uh, uh, movement briefly in 1981, 82 among, uh, uh, black, uh, uh, early hip hoppers and, um, and, uh, R and B, uh, guys and like just sort of, you know, digging in the crates type producers that they were very influenced by what was happening in Germany and in Europe, as far as the experimental um, use of the sort of early uh, drum machine um, and uh, uh, vocoder uh, technology. And so, so the Johnson crew is uh, they, they were in Boston and this was what Maurice Starr uh, did before he found uh, New Edition and uh, New Kid on the Block or New Kids on the Block. Now, a lot of people will probably remember Marie Starr. He's very charismatic, very sort of uh, flamboyant uh, producer and sort of figurehead uh, type of guy, but also just a very talented musician because he co-wrote a lot of that stuff and was a very good producer. But the Jonathan Crew is this, like, basically it's like a combination of disco R&B, but it's also really great orthodox it could it's like credible kraut rock done by black guys from boston uh with the vocoder vocals with the great drum programming and and yeah the concept is definitely like you know we're we're the brothers from outer space and uh you know so uh, these great rhythms and uh in some ways it's corny but it's endearing but it's so well done and it's like only seven or eight songs. And uh, what, what I've always found funny about it is they, they have a song on that, I think called uh, uh, Space Cowboy. Uh, and so this is back in 1982. Well, Neil Young, like I said, who's one of my heroes, released the album Trans that same year. And he has a, and basically it was the same shtick. Uh, it was Neil Young discovering uh, vocoder and sort of, uh, uh, that sort of European technology, but he did it as Neil Young. Uh, it's a fascinating record anyway, but he has a song on it called Computer Cowboy, which is got the best riff on it, but is also by far the corniest song on it, the worst song on it. Well, Johnson Cruz Space Cowboy is the concept done way better and way more enjoyably and is about as endearing and is about as capturing of this era and this, this movement as, as possible. And it's still, I mean, about every couple of years, I still whip out this record and I did this recently. And, uh, 
you know, I, I totally recommend it. It's Johnson Crew Lost in Space. It is on Spotify. You can probably, I think you can find it on YouTube. Uh, if there is such a thing as an underground record store in your town still open, uh, you can at least ask. And chances are, you know, like one of the, you know, the comic book guy, you know, uh, type from The Simpsons that runs a place will know it. So there you go. Silver Apples and the Johnson Crew. So that's the kind of... Uh, depth you can expect uh from this podcast and the kinds of left uh, turns you can get it so uh and we hope you enjoy our next three episodes will be part of a trilogy yeah absolutely and uh in which we uh for the most part bag on really really old people we wish would go away uh so and some younger people too <laughs> yeah well and then younger as in like 55 60 uh, so, uh, so yeah, so this is going to be our sacred cows trilogy. And so it gives you an incentive to, uh, to, to chime in, um, and to, to listen. And again, you know, this one was our intro worldview, uh, episode and I, you know, it's 90 minutes, but it's been a lot of fun and we hope that you really enjoyed, uh, uh hopping on the vibe again, uh, reach out to us, curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Visit us on Twitter at curmudgeon, uh, uh pod. And we'll eventually at, at, at curmudgeon pod at curmudgeon pod. And then uh, eventually we'll be on medium and we'll be doing some stuff with Patreon, which we're excited about. We'll, we'll share Absolutely. that. We'll share that as we go along. So, Hey man, uh, you know, rock on, uh, piss off rock on and rock out, rock on, rock out, piss off. Uh, you know, do, do your own thing. Uh, never stop being an original and, you know, look, uh, you know, uh, you can grow old without growing without growing stale and out without growing lame. And we're, we're definitely proof of it. So, uh, oh, <laughs> that, yeah. So we're, oh, yeah. Gracefully. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say our balls haven't reached our knees yet. So thanks. Exactly. Thanks for hanging out with us, man. And, uh, we'll, right. uh we'll, thank you. And we'll, we'll talk to you guys or, and we'll hope you guys will listen next time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, hit us up next week uh, and we're, we're, uh, at all the places where you can find all the podcasts. So, uh, be well, y'all, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. The Curmudgeon Rock Report will keep on rocking if you do. Catch us where you catch all the podcasts. We know you love rock and roll as much as we do. Support us with donations at patreon.com slash curmudgeonrock. Find show notes and more on our Medium site. Join us next time as rock nerds smack you knowledge. Stay rude, stay crude, stay sophisticated. Thank you for listening.